Hello and welcome back to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institutes for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxham, Project Support Officer at the Sainsbury Institutes and a researcher of Japanese war heritage. This week we are joined once more by Professor Simon Kainer, Executive Director at the Sainsbury Institutes for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, for a reflective episode on international research post-pandemic. Much has changed in international academic fields such as Japanese studies since March 2020 in response to restricted domestic and international movement. Academic institutes such as the Sainsbury Institutes have drastically altered their approach to fostering international research projects with such digital initiatives as this very podcast. Simon will share with us how else these projects have been altered by the pandemic, the pros and cons of such changes, and how he believes future international research will look once we're at the other side. We hope you enjoy the show. Good morning, Simon. Welcome to the podcast again. Morning. Lovely to be here. So, first of all, if you wouldn't mind reintroducing yourself, we'd like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how you're interested in you there? Of course. So, my area is really archaeology which is the science of the study of the human past, understanding how we've ended up being like we are today. And through much of my career, I specialized on Japanese archaeology, partly because I think there's a lot in Japan that uh, is not very well known about outside Japan that can really contribute a lot to that story. So um, I came to Japanese archaeology through my undergraduate studies when I was doing, you had to focus in on a particular period or particular part of the world. And I wasn't very good at making my mind up. So I decided to go for the biggest part of the world that was on offer. And that just happened to be for pretty much the whole of Asia. In fact, it was South and East Asia. And at that time, there was somebody called uh, Gina Barnes, now a professorial associate at SOAS, but um, Gina was also at Durham University. But at that time, she was teaching in Cambridge. And um, she introduced me to Japanese archaeology. And I was very lucky that in my third year as an undergraduate, uh, when I should have been revising for my finals, just at this time of year, actually, March, I was taken over to Japan with a couple of my colleagues. And we were looking for ancient paddy fields in the Nara Basin with some very heavy Dutch coring equipment and a Dutch archaeologist in tow as well leading the project for us. And my job was to do phosphate analysis of some of the samples that came out through the cores that we took up and down the Nara Basin. Gina had worked extensively in Nara for her PhD and her research, looking at the state formation, the establishment of the first state-level societies in Japan. And I was dead lucky. So while I was there, Gina also arranged for me to go and uh, take part in an excavation of a Kofun burial mound near Okayama in the Kibi region, just behind um, Okama, along the inland sea there. And the archaeologist running that was a very famous, I didn't know how famous at the time, Kondo Yoshiro of Okama University, as well the doyen of, of Kofun burial studies, and a great Marxist archaeologist. And especially in the years following the Second World War, left-leaning archaeologists had a, had a, had a big voice in Japanese archaeology. And he was very hot on the, the civic responsibility that archaeologists have. And he was also translating a book by perhaps the most famous Western Marxist archaeologist, a man called Gordon Child, Via Gordon Child, who was a Australian by birth, but had been professor of archaeology at both the Institute of Archaeology in London and in Edinburgh, 
And he wrote a lot about archaeology all across Europe in the middle years of the 20th century. And uh, one of his most famous books was called uh, The Danube in Prehistory. And it described how he was talking about the, the his, he coined the term the Neolithic revolution. And uh, he saw people coming in from the Near East and up through the Danube into Europe. And Professor Condor was translating this book. And he got me to transliterate all the very complicated Central European place names and site names and things for him. And then I also had the chance to travel around and get to see some of the museums and some of the actual artifacts that uh, we'd only seen pictures of in books before that. And I just kind of fell in love with what was happening in Japan. And I was fortunate to be able to go back once I'd graduated on the precursor to the JET program. I spent two years teaching English in Hyogo Prefecture. Um, and then I came back and was just, I spent a couple a year doing on the, what we call the, the archaeology excavation circuit um, here in, in the UK, uh, digging on a number of, of rescue sites. And then I was lucky to get a grant from the British Academy that allowed me to go back to university to do my PhD. And I chose to do Jomon Settlement Archaeology um, because I had come to realise that there were a huge number of these prehistoric settlements being excavated in Japan, and there was nothing about most of them um, available in English. And I thought that would be an, a nice, easy topic to cover in three years. I very soon realized when I sort of really got into the reading, especially the Japanese reading, is how much data there was. It took me a little bit longer than three years to get it done. But that sort of given me the, the underpinnings of a lot of what I've been doing subsequent to that. Right. And how did you arrive at the Sainsbury Institute then? Yeah, that's a really good question. So once I finished my PhD, I looked around. There were no jobs in Japanese archaeology in the UK. Unsurprisingly, Gina was in Durham at that stage, and that was the only post where anything was happening around Japan. So I thought, okay, what am I going to do? So I was fortunate. I draw my British archaeological contacts, and I got a job looking after what we call development control archaeology for the county of Cambridgeshire in the county archaeology office there. And development control, this is what in Japan is well, perhaps more broadly known as rescue archaeology. And in England, as in Japan, archaeology is part of the development process. And we get the developers who are going to be destroying vulnerable and fragile and important archaeological remains. They're the ones who have to pay to have them properly recorded so that we can achieve what is described as preservation by record. And this is something that happens in Japan as well. So I spent a very happy few years visiting archaeological sites in Cambridgeshire that were being dug up, setting up those projects, working with the archaeological contracting units that were actually doing the excavations, and in fact, welcoming a number of Japanese visitors who were interested in what was happening in Britain. That day was happening. We can talk about that maybe a little bit later on as well. And then, strangely, I, I had uh, I'd applied for a job because there were so few jobs. I know we're going to come back to this later on as well, but at that time as well, there were hardly any jobs um, that related to Japan. And I remember applying for a job in Asian art, which really wasn't my specialisation, but I thought, well, I'm just going to give it a go. And I got interviewed, and it was at the University of East Anglia. And it turned out that uh, one of the other candidates was somebody called Nicole Roumanier. And strangely, we got to listen to each other's presentations, which doesn't always happen. And um, we had lunch together. We got on very well. I went back to Cambridge, didn't get the job. I wouldn't. And then a couple of years after that, I got a telephone call from Nicole, strangely, saying, oh, you probably don't remember me, but we met when that job came up in Norwich. And um, she said, the Sainsbury's, um, the Sir Robert and Lady Sainsbury, whose collection, of course, was had been donated to the University of East Anglia back in the 1970s. 
had just decided to create an institute for the study of Japanese arts and cultures. And Nicole was going to be very busy getting it all set up. And would I be interested to go and cover some of the teaching that she was going to be doing? Could I, could I teach a module in effect in Japanese archaeology? So off I went and did that. And through discussions, it came apparent that they were looking to expand the remit of the institute a little bit. And they advertised for the post of assistant director. Well, I thought, well, that's interesting. It's an opportunity to take me back to some sort of my Japanese interests. So I applied and um, I was fortunate enough to be able to get the job. And that is just getting on for 20 years ago now. That was 2001. And I started at the Sainsbury Institute in July 2001, just before we moved into our new headquarters in 64, the close in the centre of Norwich. Wonderful. So before we look at international research post-COVID, we'd like to get a sense of what international research typically entailed pre-COVID. Could you give us a glimpse of what you would have to do in an average academic year in organising such projects as the executive director of the Sainsbury Institute? Wow, that's a big question. So um, yeah, at at the Sainsbury Institute, we're, we're very fortunate in that we have a tremendous community of research active colleagues. And every year we have some visiting research fellows, our Robert and Lisa Sainsbury fellows, and we sometimes have our Handa Jomon Archaeology fellow as well. And they're all busily doing their research, as are my academic colleagues. And we've got a number of academic colleagues um, in Norwich now, as as you know, and well, scattered around the place a little bit due to the pandemic. But um, what we normally do is we'll set up the, the programme for the year and we have a number of research strands that we're pursuing. We sort of group our projects in, into four main areas. One is archaeology and cultural heritage, which are things that I do. We do something on contemporary Japanese visual cultures, which is particularly in recent years focused on manga. Had a big exhibition on manga that we were closely working on with colleagues from the British Museum. Our most recent strand is called Digital Japan. And so some of the projects that we do now have a sort of a, a big digital component to that much more, and we'll talk about that in a second, much more um, post-COVID than, than pre-COVID, I suppose. We'd sit down um, and we'd, we'd all get around the table in our seminar room and we'd talk about the various projects that we'd like to do, what our plans were for the year. We'd work out where we'd have to go to get those things funded and what it is we'd need to do. All of our projects at the same Institute are collaborative in nature. If we're working on something to do with Japan, most of the projects obviously are, then we usually have Japanese partners that we're working with. And quite a lot of my time as executive director is, is spent going over to Japan and meeting all those different partners, making sure that all of the, the frameworks are in place to allow those collaborations to happen. In terms of delivering the research projects themselves, we do a, a number of different things. So one of the things we find is quite a successful model is that we will often run international collaborative workshops on a particular project. That's an opportunity to bring together specialists from all over the place who we want to work with and sort of go through the sort of the nuts and bolts of what we want to do and, and present research findings. That's something that's been a very important part of what we've been able to do at the same Institute, just bringing those colleagues from all around the world come and talk about their world-leading research. And then, of course, there's there we've, we've worked a lot with museums and things in the UK as well. So some of our outputs are books and publications. Some of them are exhibitions. And so quite a lot of our time has been spent um, putting exhibitions in place, again, usually with, with, um, with very significant project partners, both in Japan and elsewhere. So, for example, here in the UK, we've, over the years, we've done a lot with the British Museum. And that's certainly a relationship that we'd like to be able to continue if we, if we can. And with the Sainsbury Centre, 
um, and I'll talk about those projects um, a little bit later on. So there's there's a, a huge amount of sort of setting up of these projects and it's actually doing the project, doing the research project itself, which usually involves, again, time in libraries, time in Japan. In my case, it involves visiting museums and sites that are being excavated and getting a sort of a real hands-on feel for, for what's, what's going on there. And it's that research dimension of what we're doing um, and then analysing the results of what's been found, writing those results up, preparing the reports and publications, all of that easily, usually sort of takes up all the time that we've got dedicated for research. So there's certainly quite a lot of moving around. Now, with domestic travel, let alone international travel, limited by the pandemic, how did this impact scheduled projects for 2020? And to what extent were they salvageable through digital alternatives? Well, there's no question that it had a massive impact. There was, uh, when I think about it, um, I was in Japan in January 2021, um, and there were just we there were just sort of rumours of this new thing happening in China, and, and you should be a bit more careful about what we were doing. And then in February 2021, we ran our winter program in British archaeology, whereby we bring um, a group of Japanese undergraduates, usually from the University of Tokyo. We put them together with a group of undergraduates from British universities, and we were spending 10 days down in Salisbury around the site of Stonehenge and Avebury, and sort of introducing them to archaeologists there and, and, and talking through all of the issues about archaeology and heritage management, both in the UK and in Japan. And of course, all of that depended very much on being able to travel around and go and visit sites and things like that. March, I was in the Czech Republic and in Hungary, setting up our normal summer program, our Japan orientation program, which is sponsored by the Torchman International Foundation, which again involves me going and visiting places over there to encourage students to come and spend time with us in Japan in Norwich. And I got to give some talks and meet some potential new research partners there in a consortium with the Etvos Lorand University in Budapest and with Kobe University and the National Museum of Japanese History. And I met the all the partners in that consortium and we were talking about what we were going to be doing, which was going to be more projects and visits and reports and what have so everything that we had planned, including three exhibitions, just had to get put on hold when the lockdown happened in March. And we just had to sit down. We had we probably had about a week, two weeks, perhaps, when we, I remember we had a couple of meetings in Norwich thinking, what are we going to do? How can we turn an institute which is so dependent on having people coming backwards and forwards, all the visiting, all the active research going on? How can we turn that into something that's still going to have value when we're not able to travel around? Now, of course, at that time, we had no idea how long this was all going to go on for. Probably we were thinking, oh, it's going to be over by about Easter. We'll be okay by then. And of course, here we are exactly a year on, and it is far from over. And even if we think here in the UK, we're now being vaccinated clearly elsewhere in the world. Japan has closed its borders, in effect. So I've not been able to go back to Japan for over a year now. And I'm not anticipating being able to get back there for, for a long time. So all of a sudden, our digital Japan strand suddenly came into focus. And we thought, OK, what can we do digitally to make up for what we were what we've been doing in person? And so along with the rest of the universe, we've become au fait with Zoom and Teams and Skype and all of these sorts of things. And um, I've continued to try and give online lectures. We moved our public um, programs, our third Thursday lectures online. 
and the research as well. I think we've all become expert now in working out exactly what resources are available to allow us to continue to do our research from our kitchen tables um, without being able to go out the front door. And it is extraordinary how much we are able to do. We've been able effectively, to, I think, to transition a lot of our projects over in that way. Although, of course, the human contact side of it, the act of being able to get out and about is something we're going to have to wait for a while longer to be able to reinstate. So are there any unexpected benefits and advantages that Going Digital has brought to these international research projects? Yeah, um, there are. I think there really are. And um, and I think in a second we'll talk about what some of the what some of the disadvantages might be as well. But I suppose the advantages are that you know when, for example, I can now sit in, as I say, sit at home, I can give a talk to an audience all around the globe, and I've been fortunate to be able to do that a number of times over the last year. And it perhaps means that we can feel much closer to many of our research colleagues and our audiences who are not able to get to Norwich or who are not able to get into a conference room straight away. So it's kind of given us a, a, a rather different kind of global global reach, I suppose. I think the best example I can think of for this is what we were able to do in place for our summer programs last year. So as I said, I was when when the lockdown really started up, I was I'd be, just been in Central Europe sort of establishing connections for our Japan orientation summer program. But we were also planning to run um, our third Ishibashi Foundation summer fellow in Norwich as well. And we'd put the adverts out and everything and we were hoping for another good crowd. We knew we wouldn't be able to do that. So with with you and with other colleagues in the same pursuit, um, we very rapidly said, well, let's 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 just try an online summer program, see how that goes. And I thought, you know, normally we would expect to bring maybe 30, 35 students to Norwich um, over the course of those two summer programs. We were all rather blown away, I think, by the by the response. We had over 300 people sign up for the course and over 200 of them stayed with that program for the whole two weeks wherever they were and they were all over the world and so that i think has given us a whole new global dimension perhaps we're up to now the sainsbury institute we focus obviously on colleagues here in the uk in japan in certain parts of europe and in north america but this means that i think it suddenly made me realize certainly how much interest there was all around the world particularly actually in what we might regard as the global south. So in um, in India and in Latin America, there's new audiences there. And I'm sort of doing some thinking now about how we might be able to engage with that, those areas much more effectively than we have in the past. So that will probably be the main unexpected benefit and advantage I can think of. Now, as we begin to see the potential end of restrictions, given the slow global progression towards vaccination, What elements of international research from pre-COVID times do you think will return, perhaps in a slightly changed way, and what elements from the pandemic do you think will endure? And can we hope to see an end to the Japanese love for paper copies regarding applications, for example? (laughs) Um, I don't know if anybody listening listened in to the lecture given last night by the homecoming British ambassador to Japan, Paul Madden, and he gives a report each year. And he said when he first arrived in the embassy in Tokyo four years ago, one of the things he couldn't help but notice was the fax machine in the corner. And he was told that he'd he'd had several spells in in Tokyo, so he knew exactly what this is all about. And it was explained to him that that many of the Japanese contacts that uh, the British embassy maintained um, preferred to communicate with the embassy via fax still, despite us being here in this wonderful digital age. 
And it made me reflect, actually, that, yeah, we still have a fax machine in the Sainsbury Institute and we still use it. And there are professors in Japan who, when I need to reach out to them, I know that if I send them a fax, it will get looked at. Um, and I'll sometimes get a reply by fax as well. Um, whereas if I send an email, I'm never going to get a reply. So that's been something that we've all, we've all got used to, I think. And of course, the, you know, all the forms and the Hanko stamps and everything that go alongside that. So it's always been part of, you know, our engagement with Japan and all the paperwork and what have you. Anybody who's applied for a grant from any of the wonderful funding bodies in Japan will know that that's a very important part of what you do. So whether that really will stop or not, I don't know. I suspect those fax machines will still be in use after the pandemic, but uh, one can but hope, I suppose. In terms of as restrictions hopefully start to lift, I'm very much hoping, of course, that we will be able to start traveling again and go back to Japan. I'm a firm believer that there's nothing quite like face-to-face meetings. And of course, this is true in Japan. It allows you to go out. When you have your formal meeting, we all know that the important bit of the formal meeting is actually what tends to happen afterwards, when you can really confirm what's being discussed in the formal meeting. And um, that's something that I'm missing very much. And I know that um, to sort of to be able to get back to that will be great. However, having said that, I think we're all increasingly aware of the importance of making sure that our research activities are sustainable. And I mean that in the, in the broadest in the broadest sense, really, I think it's incumbent on all of us now to be thinking about the impact that we're all having on the planet as we rush around and do our research or encourage others to follow us um, as we get on those planes and travel around. So I know that we'll all be thinking very hard about how we can ensure, I'm sure we all did, you know, anyway, so we get absolutely everything we can out of those research visits and things that we're making. Um, but I think there's a much greater responsibility on us now. And um, we need to be able to demonstrate that we have thought through what the impact is going to be of undertaking all of those kind of activities. And as a result, of that, now that we, we know that the digital world works so well, that all these platforms that we've got work so well, I think there's going to be an awful lot more that we can do using the digital technologies that are available to us that will allow us to reduce down our carbon footprints. And as we all know, we've got the COP26 conference in Glasgow this year. The Sainsbury Institute's been doing some work thinking about how can we ensure that all of our activities are as sustainable as possible. And part of that, we've, you know, we've got a bit of a voice with our various audiences. Part of that is, is taking a lead and showing the way and just raising awareness about this issue and, and raising awareness about best practice around these issues as well. And I think they're some of the elements from the pandemic that I hope will endure. I'm sure reducing jet lag will not be a problem at all there. <laughs> uh, so uh, I, I'm sure we have a few listeners in the early postgraduate stage of their academic career. In these changing and all the more competitive circumstances, do you have any advice for them in navigating post-pandemic academia? Well, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, we're still in pandemic academia at the moment. And I know that, you know, colleagues all around the world still are. What's it going to be? Uh, another six months, another year? I think what we're all pretty sure about is that there's no going to be returning back to what it was before. It's something that um, at our university, the University of East Anglia, has been very upfront about right from the start. There's no, there's no going back to an old normal um, you know, there's a cliche to talk about the new normal now. We don't know what it's going to look like. And I think we don't know what we're going to really have lost. Obviously, we've lost far too many people and we've lost opportunities, but we don't, you know, we're, we're, we're going to be looking at a very different landscape post-pandemic here in the UK. Obviously, um, along with the pandemic, we've had the whole Brexit scenario and um, the impact that that's going to have on funding 
in all sorts of ways is only just we're only starting to get glimpses of that i think and that we're going to have a fight on our hands to be able to get keep funding at um, existing levels and not find that actually all that funding is just is just going to go away so i think that's going to be a challenge for the next generation of researchers to tell the truth i think um, one thing's that I'm trying to take my own advice here is, and I'm not very good at it, is uh, sort of following what's happening in social media, the discussions, and we're all encouraged to go to online conferences. I, I don't know, I'm sure many of our academic colleagues, if anybody's listening, will be all too aware of, of the joys of sitting up in the middle of the night thinking, well, I can't be in you know the state, I can't be in a different time zone, um, but I can still listen in to these conference sessions and then realising that it's three o'clock in the morning and is that really what you want to be doing? I think ensuring that we strike really good work-life balances. Many of us, I know, have caring responsibilities that have really come to the fore um, through the pandemic. And there's, I think, some of the expectations around academia in particular, because academics do tend to sort of set the, we tend to set the parameters for ourselves, I suppose, uh, sort of trying to squeeze into every five minutes a bit more reading or a bit more writing or whatever it is we need to do. Um, I think all of us need to need to be making sure we're building in and really sort of all these terrible expressions baking in if you like a really good work-life balance and making sure we know when to stop and otherwise the quality of what we do will very rapidly suffer i think now every of course every situation every disaster like the pandemic is part of a disaster process really um will throw up new opportunities maybe we don't necessarily see what those opportunities are just yet but we've touched on some of the advantages of what we can do digitally and i'm sure we're going to all become expert well Many of us have already, but there's going, there's going to be much more need to become truly expert in managing all of this digital stuff. We won't be able to avoid that anymore. And I imagine that things like what we describe as blended learning, so a sort of a blend of in-person and online is going to be important. And it won't only be blended learning, but it'll be blended research as well. And so all learning, I think that sort of feeds back to what I was saying about sort of being sustainable is what can we do from home? What more can we do from here without having to do all the traveling and everything that's normally involved in that? Out of all of that, I mean, I, I think, you know, the message of all this is perhaps we can just, it's, it's trying to find ways to keep ourselves motivated and keep ourselves optimistic. You know, the pandemic will pass. We know that from pandemics in the past, you know, many of us working in academics have got good ideas. We've seen, you know, we've studied what, what's happened in the past. And we know that it will pass and there'll be a new world out there. And there'll be all sorts of innovations. And we just want to make sure that we're as open as possible to those innovations. And maybe using this period, sort of the, 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 the fag end, if you like, of lockdowns and, and, and the pandemic situation, to make sure that we're taking advantages of whatever training opportunities are there so that we are fully equipped for whatever this new normal throws at us. Well, thank you for answering all my questions, Simon. Before we finish the episode, could you share with us what other projects you're currently working on? Yeah, we've got a couple. We've got a few things cooking, actually, So, which is sort of a bit crazy, sort of a bit of fun, um, but also some, I think, some very solid research happening as well. Today, uh, here we are. We're, we're recording this on the 25th of March, um, and today is the day that the Tokyo Olympic torch relay begins um, in Fukushima. Um, we've already been doing some work this year marking the 10th anniversary of the Great East Japan disaster, that triple disaster of the earthquake, uh, tsunami, and uh, nuclear meltdown. And we've been looking at some of the cultural heritage and archaeological um, 
situations that arose as a result of that will continue doing that i think over the course of this year and that's something that um, i would have loved to have gone back to to the affected areas and, and met with the people that i met there 10 years ago see what they're all up to at the moment but uh, we've been able to do quite a lot of that digitally and online actually um and so that's something that we'll be continuing but because it's a torch relay we thought we would uh, we would sort of follow the relay as it goes around japan and it'll be an opportunity for us since we're not going to be able to get there not be able to get to the olympics um either sadly um but to at least go and sort of visit all the people because i know there's been a huge amount of preparation for all of this across japan you know the whole country has been um geared up for a, a massive influx of of over overseas tourists as well as a lot more domestic tourism and so i'm sort of trying to think of ways that we can be making sure we're hooked up with the people that have been involved in those initiatives things like japan heritage by the agency for cultural affairs i suppose is one of them and there are there are other things as well where um whole route ways have been prepared and i want to make sure that we can do some some good social media around that and sort of turn that perhaps into a bit of a research project in its own right We've got some exhibitions that we're working on. So as I said earlier on, many of our projects had to be cancelled or deferred. Happily, the sort of the bigger exhibitions that we were thinking about have been deferred. So we get this summer at the Sainsbury Centre. Um, we're going to be looking at Shotok Taishi. We have a representation of one of his wives. Um, we think it's one of his wives anyway, um, in the Sainsbury collections. And we're going to have a digital intervention um, around that. That will be uh, starting this spring and rolling out across the summer. And we have another exhibition this summer. With a, with, a, with a living Japanese Swiss artist called Leiko Ikimura, um, who's based currently in Berlin, never had a, a show in the UK, and she's going to have an exhibition um, opening on the 21st of August um, in Norwich, and we're hoping, of course, that all the restrictions will have been lifted by that point so that everybody can come and see that, and that'll roll out through the autumn, and I'm hoping we'll be able to do a conference around that. We've got a book coming out, and we will sort of be situating Leiko in the contemporary Japanese um, art world, I suppose. And then a project I'm particularly excited about at the moment is um, something called Circles of Stone, Stonehenge and Prehistoric Japan. So it takes me back to my archaeology, I suppose. This is a project we're working on with English Heritage and the wonderful colleagues in the visitor centre at the World Heritage Site at Stonehenge itself. This year, 2021, probably in July, I believe, 17 Jomon sites in northern Japan in Akita, Aomori and Iwate and in Hokkaido will hopefully be inscribed as UNESCO World Heritage. That's Japan's um, bid this year. And... Um, in amongst those 17 sites, there are a number of prehistoric stone circles. And these are sites, as I say, that really aren't well known outside Japan. Um, they've been known in the in the English literature on Jomon archaeology for some time. So, for example, a man called Neil Gordon Munro, um, who published the first English language synthesis of Japanese archaeology, a book called Prehistoric Japan, back in 1908. Um, and he had pictures of the Oshodo stone circles up in Hokkaido as part of that book. So we can't say that these things haven't been known about for a long time. But our focus is going to be on the Oyu stone circles and uh, stone circles called Isedota in, in both in Akita and a big site called Sandai Mariyama in Aomori and some um, sites, but they're all about 5,000 years old, um, along with the sites that produce very famous pots called flame pots, Kai and Gatadoki. 
from Niigata, from the Shinano River region, where I've been doing um, a lot of field work over the years with colleagues there. And we're going to put on a little intervention in the Stonehenge Visitor Centre, and that will open in September, and it will be on for a year. And we're going to be preparing a new book on that, on Japanese stone circles to accompany that. And as things open up even more, I'm hoping that over the course of the year, we'll be able to welcome Japanese archaeological colleagues to the UK, so they'll be able to come and explain um, some of the things that they're doing in Japan directly to our audiences here. So um, there's quite a lot going on from this kitchen table, but we'll see. Um, and I'm hoping we can deliver on most of it. But there's a nice mix of things there. Um, and of course, once we can get back to um, normal, well, slightly more normal working, um, we'll be looking at sort of reinstituting our program workshops and conferences and research visits to Japan as well. Excellent. Well, lots to look forward to then. Thank you, Simon. As always, it's been a pleasure. Thanks very much, Ollie. You can find the link to Simon's research profile in the description below. For the next three weeks, Beyond Japan will be hosting a mini-series around the 1400th anniversary of Prince Shotoku Teishi, the legendary figure who brought Buddhism to Japan, in collaboration with a Shotoku intervention currently being planned at the Sainsbury Center for Visual Arts. Over the next three episodes, we'll be exploring three themes, determining history from myth in ancient texts, understanding the spread of religions, and political women in early history. Stay tuned for more updates on the CDS Twitter page or at japanandnorwich.org. We hope you will join us then. Thank you for listening.